Welcome to Rewrite the Rules, the show about women leaders in Asia. My name is Ritu Mehrish and I interview successful women leaders across Asia to discover how they are rewriting the rules of life, career and relationships. From these conversations, we will get practical and actionable tips that we can use to accelerate our own career journeys. Don't worry about writing all the points because I will summarize them at the end for you. We will also link the entire transcript in the show notes. Welcome, Professor Lim. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. And today, I'm sure our listeners are in for a treat. And uh, before we start the conversation, I want to just do a very short introduction. And then I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about your journey. So Professor Lim is Vice President of Partnerships and Engagement at Singapore Management University, also called SMU in this part of the world. Uh, she's also a professor of communication and technology at its College of Integrative Studies. So welcome, Professor Lim, once again to the show. Um, professor, it'll be great if you could start by telling us a little bit about your current role and a little bit about your journey. So I'm currently Vice President Partnerships and Engagement at SMU, and I look after four offices. The first is industry engagement, which is essentially about building relationships with industry partners. And then I also manage innovation and entrepreneurship. So that's where we um, try to incubate, for example, startups and we build the startup ecosystem in Singapore. At the same time, um, I also oversee international relations, which relates to our relationships with partner universities. And finally, I'm also in charge of the Office of Overseas Centres because SMU is opening overseas centres in ASEAN and possibly beyond. Wow, that sounds like a lot going on. Uh, Professor Lim, did you always want to do what you're doing today? Um, yes, pretty much. I think from the moment I embarked upon graduate school, I knew that I wanted to be deeply immersed in understanding um, the impact of different kinds of technological trends on mm. society, whether it was from a practitioner's perspective or from an academic perspective. I could actually see that technological transformation was unfolding and I very much wanted to help um, appreciate it as well as see how it could be well applied. Yeah. And um, so then after, as you said, after you graduated, did you get into teaching straight away or what's been your journey like? Right. Um, so it's quite interesting because when I first embarked on my master's, I decided to do media and communication because the internet was exploding. And um, that was when I undertook my PhD research also on online behavior. So when I returned from London to Singapore in 2003, um, I felt that I had returned to a country that was quite different because when I looked around me in the food courts, in public places, people were using mobile phones. Um, broadband internet was also exploding in the home and people were going online a lot more. And I wondered to myself, you know, how is this actually changing people's lived existence? How is this influencing people's uh, in domestic interactions at home, workplace interactions? And when I looked at the academic community in Singapore, people who were doing this kind of research, 
I think I could probably count on one hand the number of people at that time. And I thought, wow, you know, um, someone needs to be looking at this and it might as well be me. So that's how I really sort of um, embarked on a very uh, long and productive journey of understanding how the technological um, changes have impacted on society. Right. Um, I'm interested to know, what were some of your, you know, maybe top two, three findings? Were there any surprises? Right. Um, I think when I returned, because there were so many shifts in society, there was a great deal of concern and the usual moral panic. Um, members of the public were thinking that people would become more disconnected from each other and that, you know, uh, children would stop talking to their parents. And that's where, together with my students, we embarked on research of technology use in households. And I remember there was a particular um, piece of research we did with elderly parents and uh, their adult children. And it was fascinating because um, even at that time when people were primarily using the uh, Nokia feature phones, uh, we could see that actually um, in many ways it facilitated interactions within the home because people could actually keep in touch with each other throughout the day. And at the same time, when the parents were sort of struggling with these devices, their kids would step in and teach them. And this actually opened the uh, door towards greater interactions and knowledge sharing. So that was one of the surprise findings. And um, similarly, when I went to uh, extend my research to countries like Korea, because at that time, Korea was the most technologically advanced, um, it was really an interesting sort of uh, insight into the future of technology at the time. It was interesting how the technology helped to, um, in many ways, improve the family relations. So, for example, there was a father who had um, mistakenly accused his daughter of having a boyfriend, which he discouraged. And then um, when his wife was trying to hint to him that he should apologize to make amends, um, he actually was quite reluctant. But um, she then used her a mobile phone to text him to say that you know you should apologize and um under the pretext of being drunk when he came home one day he then apologized to the daughter and i thought that the mother's use of the sms to hint to the husband or to remind him to apologize to the daughter was actually a very clever way of not disturbing the sort of hierarchical relationship within the household and yet still um, being able to get the message across. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got cultural norms. On the other hand, you've got very innovative and creative ways of using technology that can be advantageous. Hmm. Um, Professor Lim, I saw you've also authored a book. Tell us that. Tell us a little bit about the book. Right. Um, so this is Transcendent Parenting, Raising Children hmm. with Little Age. And essentially, um, when I think back to my own journey as a parent, uh, my daughter was born in 03, my son in 06, and iPhone was born in 07, 2007. So um, just the three years between my two children's births and as a young parent um, getting used to parenting, parenting obligations, yeah. it was fascinating for me how the emergence of smartphones 
um, and the growing intensification of mobile communication was to really sort of raise the parenting stakes in many ways. So um, when I think about my son entering kindergarten compared to my daughter, there was suddenly an explosion of parenting chat groups on yeah. platforms like Facebook and WhatsApp. And it created all kinds of interesting opportunities for parents of children in the same school or in the same class to interact with each other. But it also created all kinds of frictions where parents would actually um, confront each other if their children had you know, certain altercations in the school playground or if there were certain issues that the kids were um, having differences over. And this, to me, was actually rather unhealthy because mm. you don't allow the children to have um, agency or to develop that sense of independence yeah. or autonomy in managing their own social uh, interactions. Um, but principally, my book, Transcendent Parenting, uh, really dealt with that broader conversation around what I felt was parents being forced to transcend um, their personal lives and their parenting lives. So it didn't matter whether their children were by their side or out of sight, they always had to parent. So even when they were in the office and they were doing their work, they were getting notifications from teachers, notifications from other parents about what their kids were up to and they had to constantly parent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was nodding because I could relate to everything you said. I have two young kids myself and I was like, yeah, sometimes those WhatsApp chats and sometimes those, you know, notifications are not the best thing, but sometimes they are the best thing, right? Um, Professor Lim, I'm going to sh uh, shift gears a little bit and um, I want to talk about you as a woman leader. Um, during this long journey that you've had, um, what have been some of your challenges? Uh, so I would say that that whole, so with academia, it's actually quite challenging in the very first part of your career because the first six years is when as a lowly assistant professor, you really have to prove yourself. You've got to prove that you have a lot to contribute to the academic community, that you've got research that is going to stand the test of time, that you've got scholarly potential, not just in terms of research or in terms of mentoring students, but also in terms of helping to lead the academic community in the latter part of your career. So uh, my tenure years therefore coincided with um, the period where I had my two children at the same time. Of course, um, I was very blessed to have also an academic husband and he is slightly ahead of me in his career. So he had, by the time I was halfway through tenure, he had himself attained tenure. So he could sort of help me um, by stepping up a, a lot more in terms of the child minding. Um, but there was that difficulty of making sure that I was active in the broader academic community. And I don't just mean in Singapore, because um, for academia, our research really can potentially have global implications. So making sure that we go to international conferences, making sure that we're uh, interacting with our international peers, making sure that our research is known across the broader international academic community is something that's very important. 
And when I had two young kids, um, you know, between being pregnant, nursing, and, you know, getting them ready for um, school and so on, there was just very little opportunity to go to um, North America or Europe or Asia to do the long conference trips to make yourself um, really visible in the academic circuit. So that part of it was really quite challenging. And um, what was actually to be quite helpful was the emergence of social media because um, you realize that you could actually use social media to interact with people during the interstices between academic conferences. And so this was on top of having to conduct the research, having to publish it, but being very strategic about using social media to promote your online visibility that would then, you know, parlay into um, visibility in the community. So, so the whole business of maintaining visibility was uh, quite challenging, particularly in the early parts of the career. Right. I think one of the things in my work as, um, you know, somebody who works with, a lot with women leaders uh, through the leadership programs is this challenge where a lot of women get to a point where they are mid, mid management in the in the organization and they're like, OK, now if I have kids, I will lose the momentum or if I take a break, I lose the momentum. So I want us to kind of just um, to hear a little bit of your views. How did you manage the balance? I know it's difficult, right? But um, any tips? Any tricks on that? <laughs> um, I think um, it's actually really important to always remember to take care of your personal health. Um, yeah. And and I think that's where when you are burning the candle on multiple ends, um, you feel like you always have to give uh, the best of yourself to your job, you've got to give the best of yourself to your kids, you've got to give the best of yourself to your spouse. And ultimately, um, you can't do any of that unless you give the best of yourself to yourself. So, so for example, now when I think about um, the things that I make sure I do at the start of every week, and I've got quite a hectic schedule with you know, meeting industry partners, uh, hosting uh, university visits, as well as going out to uh, visit other universities uh, and just a whole range of things. So what I do is I, at the start of the week, I um, make sure I go through my schedule and I see where there are um, windows where I can go to the gym and exercise. And then I put it into the schedule so that I will actually go and exercise and I don't along the way commit to other meetings that will eat into this, um, this you know, gym time. And I have found that this discipline is actually really good because gym time actually is more than just keeping active. It's also when I catch up on my podcasts. It's when I actually have time to just think about things without being seated in front of a device or hunch over my phone and so on. Of course, I'm not saying that I managed this all well throughout the career. Um, clearly, when the children were smaller, it, things were a bit hairier. Now that they're um, teenagers, they're independent, um, the ability for me to be able to attend, say, a late networking event or to go to the gym after dinner, it's so much easier. So... I want to say to the younger women that it, it will get better over time uh, because A, you become more capable and more um, 
well um, adjusted to your own career path and B, um, your family situation also stabilizes over time yeah. for the most part. Right. Yes. Thank you. I think that's really great. Putting putting things in calendar always helps. Uh, and mm. I find often when you're doing things, we often forget to be uh, create that visibility for ourselves. And there is this little notion, and I think that could also be culturally saying that, oh, if I do, if I'm doing a good job, like that's all that matters. But actually, in reality, you do need to be strategic. You need need to build your visibility and not just rely on the work that you're doing. Right. So. Um, um, so, I mean, when you think about the whole sort of evolution of social media and the yeah. public that it demands of you, so I, I can even remember the days of Friendster um, and then, you know, Facebook came along and I remembered entering Facebook very tentatively because my students were on it and telling me about it and it seemed like such a university student thing to do um, and it felt very awkward for the first time actually developing my online presence choosing even the profile photo was a long struggle mm. and then every post that you put up you're like thinking you know seems so inane or seems so attention-seeking or whatever, right? But over time, depending on the community, depending on the purpose of the networking, depending on the kind of message that you want to send and use the platform for, you will find a certain um, comfort level as to how visible you want to be and what kind of... Um, image you want to build on the platform. So for example, with uh, my academic community of communication scholars, Facebook actually is still very important as a kind of water cooler for us to discuss the latest uh, moral challenges around, say, generative AI. Um, but it also is the same place where we would post pictures of our puppies or the cake that we baked and so on. And that helps with the relationship building. So Facebook for me has both a personal and a professional front. And then, of course, um, LinkedIn, I found to be tremendously helpful in terms of building connections with people beyond your um, physical networks. And it actually also opened the doors for me to connect across multiple sectors that I would otherwise not have the opportunity to meet or to think about even connecting with. So um, LinkedIn would very much be my, where I do my professional voice. So, so really, it's a learning journey and it's a matter of finding your comfort zone as to how public you want to be and what kinds of um, image you want to build on each platform. Right, right. Um, Professor Lim, in your work, are women kind of jumping in and trying, taking risks more than earlier? What's been your view on women and entrepreneurship? I would say that um, women in all sectors are being encouraged to step up more and feeling that there is a greater impetus and a greater sense of support from the broader community. So um, I'm active in, for example, the women in technology sector in Singapore. And um, it's a remarkable group of women, not all of whom were technologically trained, 
Um, many of them who are leading tech companies were actually from the humanities or the social sciences like right. me, but they see the technology sector as being one that's growing. And similarly for entrepreneurship, you also see a lot of young women being able to imagine themselves playing a driving role in entrepreneurship, which is not to say that it is easy, but um, that the climate is much more welcoming than it used to be. And I think um, when you go to, for example, entrepreneurship networking events, you may not see women dominate the room yet, but you definitely see a growing number of women like you. And so immediately you can connect with your tribe. And it helps that we've also got um, women who are driving efforts across, say, the tech sector or the startup world who help to blaze the trail and who help to build that sort of core group with whom you can connect and then to, you know, expand from there. And at the same time, I think what is encouraging is that we also do have male allies in these sectors who are sincere and who are uh, committed to actually having more diversity and not from a superficial perspective, but really wanting to reach out, wanting to sponsor women whom they can help to um, move and level up within different sectors. Right. Um, if there were two or maybe three um, things or advice you would give to emerging women leaders or younger women leaders, what would those be from your experience? I would say that it's important to see what it is you can bring to the table. Because mm. with every organization that you join, there will be different opportunities for you to make a difference. Mm. And I think um, that requires being um, humble, but also being assertive at the same time. I know it sounds almost contradictory, but on the one hand, you have to enter an, a new organization from the position of humility, which is that there is so much to learn. Yeah. But on the other hand, you've also got to have the confidence to say, but there is so much I can give. Right. That sounds, sounds really good. Um, again, switching gears a little bit. If you look back at your own career, has there been a pivotal moment in your in your journey? And is there a little bit little story behind that? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So, so coming back to the um, university journey, the the academic mm -hmm. journey, the typical journey, as I said, is you want to get tenure. And what happens with tenure is if you're successfully promoted to associate professor with tenure, it basically means that you've got your job all the way until retirement. So there's that, okay. certain, security, there's that certain security of employment. And given the tenure model, very often people will join a university and if they are tenured, they stay on in the university for their entire career, decades. Hmm. literally from start to end. Um, and I think I saw myself that way when I joined National University of Singapore. But um, along the way, because I was doing research on social impact of technology and I was in a faculty of social sciences, I did feel that I was preaching to the converted because hmm. essentially all the social scientists agreed with me that technology had both positive and adverse implications. Um, and yet I felt like the stuff that I was doing, I needed to communicate it to the technologists. I needed the engineers, the programmers, the coders 
the innovators to know that, look, when you push a technology out into the world, you've got to think about your social responsibility. You've got to think about human needs. And that's when um, the Singapore University of Technology and Design opportunity came up for me to go there and be a Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences. So I could have done the conventional path, which was to stay on in NUS. Um, but then I thought, hey, this is interesting to me to actually be able to nurture the next generation innovator. And so when I moved to SUTD, I had um, a whole new uh, world of opportunities. And because the university is um, so STEM dominated, in every committee that I was in, I was often the only social scientist, I was often the only female, I was often the youngest, and yet it created all kinds of possibilities for me to understand so much about technology, so much about, you know, uh, deep tech, about Web3, about swarms, about uh, drones, about robotics, Internet of Things, and so on. And so it really allowed me to supercharge my own work in terms of um, the social impact technology to move beyond just understanding consumer technologies, but to deeper infrastructural technologies. And it's allowed me to then really um, sharpen my research and to steer myself into areas like AI ethics which today with the explosion of um, AI, uh, generative AI has become so relevant. So I would say that this was um, actually, uh, some people were asking me and they said, why are you going to leave uh, you know, Asia's top university to join a little university that is so tech dominated? Are you sure you're not going to get lost amidst all the tech? Um, but actually it opened up all kinds of possibilities. And precisely because of that um, immersion into tech, I also became much more industry friendly and much more industry focused. So when the SMU uh, partnerships and engagements role came along, it seemed like a perfect fit because I had been able to build my networks with industry partners. And when I was nominated member of parliament, I was also able to interact more with the people sector, with the public sector. So all the experiences from my different um, career opportunities came together very nicely and lined me up uh, for this SMU role that I currently uh, am uh, undertaking. Wow, so your risk paid off. And of course, you brought out a very, um, you know, you said it just as a statement, but the fact that you were member, member of parliament, uh, that itself, I don't know how many people get to do it or how many women especially get to do it. And Professor Lim, I want to ask you one more question, um, which is more personal. How do you define success? What does success mean to you? I think success means um, doing work that is meaningful, that people regard as being of value to society more generally. But that also helps to make a positive difference in the lives of individuals. So um, I'm very blessed in the sense that academic research ticks all those boxes because as an educator, you help to make sure that young people who are the leader, leaders of tomorrow are actually conscious and aware of what societal challenges are out there and how they can be addressed. So that's what a good social science education provides. Um, the other box that it helps to tick is that when we do research that is of value to society, then it also can um, help to sharpen policy. It can help companies 
be more mindful about their corporate social responsibility. And um, so I would like to think that through my research, through my teaching, uh, through the columns that I write about the latest technological issues, that I've been able to help society as a whole better come to grips with a lot of the changes that we are seeing um, every day. Nice, nice, very nice. Um, finally, what is one advice you would have for your younger self? Uh, don't be afraid to reinvent yourself. Hmm. And, and I think in the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to reinvent myself several times. Um, and I think with every reinvention, I've found sort of like a, a new lease of life or a new way of looking at my role and the work that I do. And it, it, make, it keeps things fresh. Wow. Wow. That, that's, that's a really good advice. Um, you know, I, before we close, I am going to summarize um, some of my takeaways, because this conversation has been so great and so inspiring, even for me. Some of the key takeaways uh, for me today were, um, you know, the first point that you said is that we all try and be the best, best of ourselves for everyone, but let's be best of ourselves for ourselves. Uh, I think that is such a good uh, takeaway. Uh, I love the point about putting things in your calendar. I try and do that. I fail sometimes, but I do try and do the same thing. But that's my first takeaway from today. The second one is importance of male allies. I know when we talk about women leadership, women empowerment, we don't talk enough. It, it sometimes becomes us versus them. But I think you pointed the importance of having male allies in our in our ecosystem, in our lives is so important. And that includes having the right partner, right? So having male allies is the second one. And the third one is, of course, the last advice that you gave to your younger self, but which applies to all of us at every stage is don't be afraid to reinvent yourself, um, you know, continuously. So thank you so much, Professor Lim. It was such a pleasure speaking with you and it was such a pleasure to have you on our show. Really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for all the lovely questions. Um, it gave me a chance to also reflect on my own journey. So really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for staying with us till the end. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please take a moment to subscribe to the show, rate us five stars and leave a review. This really helps others find the show and that means a lot to us. Thank you for joining us today. This is Ritu with Rewrite the Rules podcast. See you next time.